Okay, there there you go. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right, we're recording. So um, what I'll do is I want to talk to you a little bit about your family history and, and what you do and kind of some opportunities if people want to do those workshops and, you know, those kind of things. And then after that, we can talk a little country music. Okay, that sounds great. Okay. Um, okay. I'm... I'm here today with my friend Aretha Sills. Uh, Aretha comes from a really interesting uh, family with a great heritage in, in the theater, and now she's kind of taken that and, and made it her own, uh, and she is uh, doing some things with the Spolin. Uh, what, what's the official name, Aretha, of the theater group that you work with? Well, I um, don't really work with a specific theater group. Um, just I give viol- workshops in the theater games of Viola Spolin. Okay. And Viola Spolin is your grandmother. Yes. And um, I know a lot of people will know that name, but if they don't, uh, tell me uh, what is Viola Spolin's legacy. Okay. Um, Viola Spolin is the author of a book called Improvisation for the Theater, um, and she is considered the mother of the American improvisational theater movement. Okay. And um, and then your father, uh, Paul Sills, kind of took that in a in the same vein, but in a little bit different direction. Uh, tell me a little bit about Paul. Paul um, Paul was a director, uh, and he had studied with his mother from childhood. He played her theater games. Um, when she was developing them at Hull House in Chicago or wherever she was teaching them. And um, he uh, he grew up to be a director, and he founded a bunch of theaters in Chicago that were some of the first uh, improvisational theaters in America. Um, the first theater he founded, uh, co-founded with... Uh, uh, a fellow University of Chicago graduate, uh, David Shepard, was called Playwrights, and it wasn't an improvisational theater, um, but it had all, a, a bunch of amazing actors who were there at the time um, at the university, uh, and there was no drama department there. Uh, but there were people like Mike Nichols and Elaine May and Ed Asner and um, Severn Darden and all sorts of wonderful actors who were there um, at that time. And then... He went from there. They went on to a, a bunch of the same people uh, went on to form uh, a theater called Compass, and uh, David Shepard was the producer, and Paul was the founding director of Compass, and they used Viola's games um, to work up improvisations from scenarios that they had written, and then in the uh, later in the evening to round out the evening, they would do improvisations. Um, more as we know them today, sort of with suggestions from the audience, that kind of thing. And that also had Mike Nichols, Elaine May, um, an amazing group uh, of people. Uh, and um, and then from there he founded, he was the founding director of Second City, which he co-founded um, with, a, with a producer um, and a friend. And uh, uh, Bernie Sollins was the producer and Howard Ock. Um, and the Second City has gone on to become the, a theater that's, you know, pretty much recognized as the ground zero for improvisational comedy in the United States. Right. And um, 
we shouldn't forget Eugenie Ross Lemming in this. Yeah, she was in Second City, I believe. <laughs> right. Dale is a super fan. Um, <laughs> we'll talk more about that. We'll, we'll have to explain that one later. And but I think she was also in Story Feeder. Oh wow! Um, but I'm, I would have to, uh, which is another um, a form of theater that Paul Sills um, created and uh, took to Broadway, and um, which is the adaptations of. Uh, folk tales and literature um, using the sort of transformational space uh, found in um, Viola's theater games. Well, and whatever she does, Eugenie Ross-Lemming will not return my calls. Maybe now that I have a larger platform. (laughs) Maybe she would be on your show, Dale. Maybe so. Maybe we need to arrange that. She sure wasn't willing to talk with a young zine writer back in the 90s, that's for sure. Right. <laughs> well, and now I remember that Viola lived, I mean, she was alive when we were friends. I mean, she died yeah. in the, the 90s. Is that right? Yeah. I, so tell well, me a little I, bit of. I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No. We can cut this up, so don't worry. We don't have oh, to. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Eugene, or, um, Viola died uh, sometime in the 90s, right? Yeah, I think it was like 94. It was when we were friends because I remember that Dan Castellaneta came to the funeral and you got to have a recording of Hi Aretha in the Homer voice. <laughs> right. I don't even think I recorded that, just in my memory. Oh, oh no. Well, dang. He spoke to me. At, yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> but that's all right. I still know Dan. We could, there you go. Yeah. There you go. And um, He's a wonderful improviser. Oh, good. Well, did he study at Second City, or how did he come to know your grandmother's methods? Yeah, he well, he studied with Paul in the 80s in Chicago, um, uh-huh. and at a certain point he did study with Viola, and he was a member of the Second City Company. Okay. Um, and then he moved out to L.A. and did uh, the Tracy Ullman show, and then from there, The Simpsons. But, um, right probably not doing justice to his full bio. But he's he's one he's a great improviser. I was just lucky enough to be in a workshop with him and his wonderful wife Deb Lacosta and a bunch of other wonderful improvisers um oh, where wow. was sort of a uh, workshop for people who are writers and improvisers. And it was fun to see them play. So when um what was how was what Viola did different from what your dad did? Well, Viola was a teacher. She came out of the progressive education movement um, that was really um, around Hull House in Chicago at the turn of the last century, where all these immigrants were coming in, and um, Jane Jane Addams had uh, created Hull House as part of the settlement house movement to really help the immigrants integrate into the American culture through education and the arts. Um, And so there were a ton of classes there, and they were all uh, really um, uh, geared toward helping the community, the people in in the community, um, become participants in the democracy. It was kind of amazing. So Viola found her way there because um, after high school, her sister took her 
to go study with a woman named Neva Boyd, who is teaching group work at Hull House, which is, I guess, what we would call social work now. And Neva Boyd was like the Alan Lomax of traditional children's games. <laughs> she would go around collecting from Europe and America all these children's games um, that were, you know, already sort of being forgotten, but, you know, they, they obviously, kids were allowed to play more in the street, wherever in those days. But she would publish these chat books of traditional games, and she was a theorist of the uses of play in education. Um, and she she went on to have a school to train social workers at Northwestern University and, and other universities. She was really widely uh, just well-regarded in that field as for training social workers. So that's how Viola started out. Um, and Viola was had always been very interested in the theater. Um, her father was a, a Chicago policeman who um, who actually would, would, would be sent on opera detail, I guess, to guard the opera stars or whatever. Uh, and uh, Viola would, he would take Viola and she would watch the end. Uh, and they also, they were Russian Jews. Um, both her parents were immigrants. And the family had a tradition of putting on theatricals. and They were very dramatic, um, and they would improvise shows, you know, comedic and dramatic shows, and they would actually write, like, you know, three-act plays about their own history, about, like, coming over from Russia and the revolution and all these, um, you know. So Viola grew up in that um a way of life that may be being lost a little bit in our, you know, in our media age oh, where sure. people had yeah. to entertain themselves. Right. They would just, they would get together and sing around the piano. That's the kind of people they were. And Viola was a fun loving kind of girl. She was very, she was a basketball player. So she was already primed for this, this understanding of, she loved the theater and this understanding that Neva Boyd was teaching her that, Children learn best through play. And Neva Boyd also believed that morality is taught through play because we all agree to the rules of a game. There's no disputing it. I mean, you know, occasionally there is, especially when you play Monopoly. But there, we, <laughs> we agree to the rules of a game, any game, because it's more fun that way, because that keeps the play happening, right? Right. So in a way, children are learning a kind of morality, a kind of social contract, how to behave with other people. So um, in the 30s, in the late 30s, Viola was um, was um, was wanted to teach drama and to direct. Um, and she worked for the WPA. They had a, a dramatics project in Chicago. And so she was working with immigrant kids and um, or just like you know, city kids and, and and adults who were very often immigrants. So there was often a language barrier with her students. Sure. And anytime she had a problem directing, she would create a game instead of just telling the people what to do. Okay, you go over there, you know, <laughs> you speak uh -huh. loud or that kind of thing. Right. She she really understood how people learn because of her work with Neva Boyd. And so she would create a game for any theatrical problem she had. Wow. Um, and so she developed this huge system. And, and also, you know, the, the other exciting thing about when you learn through play is that there is um, a kind of purity and spontaneity involved um, in that. And then there, so the acting that developed was 
astonishing to people and lively and just the way people are in real life when they're highly entertaining instead of, um, or they're in the moment, you know, they're in the present time and they're truly being themselves on stage as opposed to a more uh, traditional, like in those days there was stentorian kind of acting and delivery, you know, so it was a bit radical what she was doing and having, uh, you know, and then she would have performances and some of the very first improvised performances were by these kids um, in Chicago in the 30s the very first suggestions taken from the audience, um, you know, were by uh, this uh, neighborhood kids. There's some great um, clippings about the shows she would do and how surprising they were to the critics who would go (laughs) see them. (laughs) Well, and and if we kind of correlate that to uh, what was happening in Hollywood, for example, I mean, that's when Orson Welles kind of comes in and, and does the same thing you know, in Hollywood of, of creating a more kind of, uh, not not improvisational, but a more uh, kind of, uh, you know, spoken, uh, a different way of acting. Would right. Would that be the way to say that? Yeah, her timing was, was good. It was needed, right? I mean, it, was, it wasn't that kind of stiff acting wasn't going to work on film um, yeah. for, for too long, especially once they got sound. Um, but... Paul, I guess your original question was what was the difference between what Viola did and what Paul did. Right. Uh-huh. Um, Viola was also a director. I mean, she had a children's theater in L.A. here where she directed, and, and her um, her games came out of directing and an understanding of what was needed, uh, what a director needed from an actor on stage. But uh-huh. Viola was really an educator. That's right. that's the tradition she came out of was the pro- okay. progressive education movement, and that was really what she was about. Whereas Paul was really a director, and uh-huh. um, he he is he's considered the popularizer of her work because he he used it in creating theaters as a, as a way to train his actors and as right. a basis of his theaters. And so he, as someone once said, he brought her work to the world. Okay. Did- do you think, or, or I mean, I could go even further if, if it's there, but, I mean, does the method acting movement, does any of that borrow from what Viola was doing? or uh, No, it's, in fact, they're very different. But Viola did study at, with the group theater in Chicago. I mean, excuse me, in New York in the, in the 30s. She went there and she studied with um, uh, Lou Adler and whoever else was there. Um, uh-huh. And um, she knew she understood she knew Stanislavski and she understood it. Um, but the difference is in improvisational theater, it's not scripted work. It's right. a group. It's a group art form where everyone has to create something entirely new together. And uh-huh. so, improvisational theater requires everybody to be in the present time. And so there are distinctions in the work um, where, like, obviously sense memory wouldn't work in that case because you're, uh, it, it takes uh, a player into a subjective space, a sort of a memory that only they share, and it takes them out of the present moment or whatever is okay. happening between um, the players on stage at that time. Um, uh-huh. So... There, there are differences that uh, uh, between those two schools of acting, 
and and that's one of the major ones. So I don't think they, you know, they they have their own sense of improvisations, but that's where those schools split. Okay. Who were some of the uh, improv? Who were some of the um, improvisational actors that your mom and grandma, or that your mom, that your dad and grandpa? There I go. That Viola and Paul really enjoyed. That they really enjoyed. Well, they Paul had like sort of an unofficial company of people that he worked with. That uh-huh. he he um, that a lot of them were were people who'd come through Second City with him, and so in my you know I he w- there were actors he would return to again and again, and um, so one of them just passed away. Richard Libertini was a amazing uh improviser he's 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 really pretty well known as a character actor you might have to see him to know who he is but he was in uh-huh. the in-laws and um he is one richard Shaw, the one of the greatest del, del close was uh was one in his group too wasn't he del close was uh yeah in under his direction in second city uh quite a while there, um, and Dell also studied with Viola, and because okay. Viola led the workshops at Second City, she was the director of workshops. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. And Paul's company, Avery Schreiber was a member of his company, um, Ham- Hamid Hamilton Camp, Louis Arquette, uh, Severn Darden was um, is considered, you know, Mike Nichols considered him the greatest. Severn Darden was always um one of the people he always they he and Viola oh, yeah. both loved watching Severn improvise. Um <laughs> and he's he had a sort of he was a very University of Chicago type humor where he, he had this professor who was an expert on everything. And so he <laughs> he would ask the audience you know, you'd you'd ask the audience, you know, what should he speak about? And there's a couple great sixties rec- records of his. Um and I oh, forget uh, Valerie Harper uh worked with Paul and Viola a lot. Um so Paul Sand is an amazing uh improviser and was always in from childhood. He studied with Viola in childhood at um and then he went on to be in Second City uh and then in Paul Sill Story Theater and he always worked with uh, Paul always wanted to work with Paul Sand. Alan Arkin was another um person who studied with Viola as a child here in Hollywood. And then went on to Second City. Paul Paul invited both Alan Arkin and Paul Sand to be in Second City early wow. on because he'd seen them as kids, I think. Um, anyway, that it goes on and on. I'm forgetting people, but um, he had uh, a, a Melinda Dillon, the actress, um, and Mina Kolb, who is a great um, comedic force uh and, and still with us was in the first company of second city as well oh and wow there's many more but um they were there were a group of people who really were his players now when we get further down to the ones that uh, took it to hollywood and and made it even more popular what did paul think about what they were doing i mean of course belushi and held ramus and, and those kind of people what did paul think of of that version of Second City. Yeah, he, you know, Paul had moved on by then. Um, I know he thought Belushi was funny. I don't know uh, if he would have seen, I can't remember if he saw any Harold Ramis movies. Um, 
and Paul wasn't that interested in pop culture. <laughs> uh, he was kind of, you know, he was he would sit around and read Martin Buber and Thoreau, um, Yates, you know. But he, but he did. He would always. We'd be watching TV, you know, when he'd come in and be like, "Oh yeah, I know that guy." Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he, I don't, I don't remember. I know he saw Stephen Colbert and early on. Um, Stephen Colbert, who is a Second City guy, you know, uh-huh. and he was so he was sort of in love with what he was doing there, and um, <laughs> and I know he admired Belushi, uh, and um, but I I can't honestly say that he ever sat through a whole episode of Saturday Night Live, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Once he was done with sketch comedy, he was he he was really more about the theater, like he. Uh-huh. Um, and he moved into the the theater after Second City. He left Second City to form a community theater called Game Theater in Chicago. That was a space uh-huh. where, like, peace, you know, um, women for peace would meet, and um, the the local church groups who were, you know, gathering people to protest the war, and all these people would. Um, come together and meet there, and they'd play Neva Boyd traditional games and Viola Spolin's games, and wow. and it was there that he started Story Theater. And the, it was, you know, it was just before the convention in Chicago. Uh-huh. So they were all sort of being radicalized by the war, and um, and he was no exception. And and uh, he he really because of Viola's, you know, sense of where. Of working in the community, that's where he believed the theater belonged. That okay. it needed to emerge out of the community. Um, wow. And so, you know, that's he developed Story Theater there, and it it was a big hit in L.A. and um, the early, uh, and then it moved to New York to um, to Broadway in 1970. And um, and he worked in Story Theater pretty much the rest of his life in that art form. Okay. And when you you were born in in Chicago, but then your family actually moved to Woodstock, didn't they? Is that is that how Wood- that happened? Oh, we did live it. Uh, did they live in? They lived in Woodstock not very long, I don't think. Okay, um, they moved before. a lot. Like, yeah, I was born in 1969 <laughs> in Chicago, um, and we lived there a couple of years. They bought a farm up in northern Wisconsin in Door County, uh-huh. where we still. Um, we still have that farm, and we teach workshops in the summer in the work of uh, in the theater games of Viola Spolin and Paul Sewell's Story Theater. Um, but yeah, there was a, pe- a short period in Woodstock because they would live in New York sometimes. But I don't know if they lived there very long. Okay, well maybe I guess I just had interpreted all of the stuff you were talking about, um, oh, Albert Grossman and that sort of thing. So I guess I thought you guys were living up that way. They were friends with Albert Grossman. Um, uh-huh. Albert Grossman had a was didn't he own the Gate of Horn in Chicago? Um, I think so. Yeah, and so Paul managed the Gate of Horn, and that's how he learned to run a nightclub, um, the Second uh-huh. City. That's how he learned by, by managing the Gate of Horn. And he saw Coltrane and Dylan, and you know, he recalls it as a very amazing time. And he loved Bob Dylan. My father adored Bob Dylan. Uh-huh. And there, there was, um, and so uh, Howard Alk, the, my fa- one of my father's dearest friends, 
and the first hipster in the world, a very <laughs> brilliant, amazing man, um, was the co-founder of Second City. And um, he was a filmmaker as well and um, made some really cool uh, music documentaries and all sorts of other interesting um, movies, um, like The Murder of Fred Hampton was uh, uh-huh. a movie he made. Um, and he was friends with Bob Dylan. And so Bob Dylan was like, I want to make a movie. And um, Howard, I think, and Albert Grossman were like, well, you should talk to Paul. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they um, they met in Woodstock. And I think, um, so my dad was like, well, what kind of movie do you want to make? And he said, well, I don't know. I just think it should be muddy and there should be tr- it should be set in a trailer park. I think that's <laughs> That's what he Bob Dylan wanted. And then he said, I'm going to show you a movie I really love, um, so come back tonight. So he they came back, and, and he was like, no, 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 you, the kids can't watch this movie. And it turns uh, out it was the movie, it was Freaks. He was screening them, Todd Browning's Freaks. Oh, wow. And he, this was in Woodstock, and he set up a projector on the side of, like, an outbuilding. Um, uh-huh. So they they sent the kids back, um, and my mom, she, she went into a local cafe, and she found some girls, and she's like, would you babysit for us? Bob Dylan wants to watch a, a movie, <laughs> wants us to watch a movie. And so these girls were like, oh, okay, well, if Bob Dylan, uh, if you're, you know, if you're going to hang out with Bob Dylan, okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, early 70s parenting, you have to wonder, I, we all, luckily everyone was okay. But anyway, they went back, um and watched Freaks, and um, she said, my mom told me that Bob Dylan at one point had, the projector was like inside of a little shack or something, and he had to go break into it or something. He'd locked himself out and had to go break in, and anyway. <laughs> but eventually they watched Freaks, and then uh, nothing really came of that collaboration. Those two weren't that quite. Was, that was in the, the early 70s? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so this would have been, I mean, was that kind of what turned into Ronaldo and Clara, do you think? or you know? Was yeah, maybe. Idea? Maybe, I mean, you know, Howard worked with him after that for a long uh-huh. time. But I don't, I don't think Paul and uh, Bob Dylan were really on the same artistic wavelength there. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, Freaks certainly is a fantastic movie. Well, that's kind of a segue from, you know, the the things that you're doing right now in the theater and and you know, Bob Dylan I know is as big a touchstone as it gets for you as far as musically, although uh much of uh, well how we met originally was we I, I saw and fell in love with your zine Maybell and oh, right. um, started writing for it. And so kind of tell me um because you know, for a for a zine that really didn't reach that many hands, uh, that's still well regarded. And so, tell me what kind of led to that. At least by us. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. Uh, it's. Uh, I don't know. I don't think we ever topped two hundred uh, circulation, like all in, well, you know, all told. Well, I do. I do have to tell you that you know the fact that one of my interviews was quoted in that um, 
500 greatest songs in country music that David Cantwell and Bill Friscus Warren put out clearly indicates that we we reach more people than we thought we were. I know, and it's amazing. <laughs> I, I I didn't quite realize that. Which interview? The Tom Brumley one? The Tom Brumley one, yeah. Oh my gosh! Okay, I have to check that out. I, I don't <laughs> I don't remember that. And then later, I was doing some research. We we did a Town Fanzan interview right. um, for Maybell, and I did I was that was quoted in. Um, some town fans ant books and I always I, I didn't realize this till just a few years ago. Yeah, um yeah. when I was researching for like a, a piece on on the fifteenth anniversary of his death that I wrote and um I couldn't believe that these people had gotten their hands on, <laughs> on the copy of Mabel, like where they had found it. I was amazing. Well we I I think on mine they were talking about when I talked to Tom about the Garden Party show mm-hmm. and how how you know he just felt like Rick's interpretation of the booing was so far off, and how much the people really loved him. But you know, Rick was concentrated on something yeah. else, and you know, it led to a great hit. But um, you know, so tell us for for people that haven't read, tell us about Maybell. Oh, okay. Well, Maybell was founded by um, my friends Tim Clifford and Bill Stavrou and myself. We all went to Bard College. That's how we knew each other. Um, and we we just were kind of country music obsessed. You know, I don't know even how it happened. We just were, all three of us. Um, Bill lived in Brooklyn at the time, I think, and Tim and I were in San Francisco. I'm looking at our first issue. It was spring of 1994. Right. Um, and I think I had gotten laid off from a job at the potholder outlet in San Francisco. We used to <laughs> yes, I worked at a potholder outlet, and I was getting some unemployment. <laughs> and um, uh, so we decided just to spend our time, like, writing about music instead of just always chatting about it with each other uh-huh. and making ourselves laugh. And, and we we named it after Mother Maybell Carter, um, right. goddess of the guitar, Right. And there weren't a million magazines named after people like there are now, but um yeah, that was it, it was it had an irreverent spirit um and yet we were very reverent of the music. We well, to, and a, and a, and a very detailed knowledge of the music as well. Sometimes sometimes I read back things I wrote and I'm like oh boy yeah I didn't you know there was no internet (laughs) there was stuff I just did you know I was young I think well that was wrong but okay I accept that um but yeah we cared we we cared deeply about the music and and we were kind of limited we really loved it was kind of about 70s country music you know right right even though it was named Maybell but um um, but we loved we loved more than seventies music, but there was a certain fascination with um, you know, the great stars of our childhood, kind of Willie right. Nelson and yeah, George Parton yeah. and Loretta Lynn and Yeah. Well and, and so we I talked with Tim Clifford a little bit about this, but but clearly um as you know as, was it T. S. Eliot that talked about his world being divided between Dante and, and Shakespeare. I mean, your <laughs> country music world is clearly 
um, divided between Dolly Parton and Merle Haggard. And even though I think everybody has a much better understanding of kind of the artistry of those pe- people and how differently, you know, they're not looked on as rubes and hicks anymore, I, I still think there are a lot of people that maybe don't understand how breathtaking they are. And so tell me a little bit about your favorites. Oh, boy. Um, you mean about Dolly and Merle? Yeah, yeah. Tell me tell me if somebody doesn't look oh. at them as anything other than, oh, they, you know, they appeared as guest stars on Hee Haw or something. Right. You know, tell them how wrong they are and how badly they are. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, they both suffer a bit from from some misconceptions. I think Dolly, because she's so just um, sparkly. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, she wrote that song, Dumb Blonde, just because I'm blonde, don't think I'm dumb. Um, but I, I think we understand Dolly now more because she's she's so outspoken about herself. You know, she has those great lines like, you know, just about that it takes a lot of money to look this cheap and that kind of right. she has a very self-aware sense of humor about her own image that people obviously love obviously she's sort of a gay icon and you know i mean it's there is no shame in admitting you really love dolly parton anymore pretty much everybody yeah. thinks it's cool um in some way shape or form it's understood um, Merle can be, but I, I still, I just still don't know how many people actually listen to her music, given all right. that, and and right. what, and, and that. know what a remarkable, astonishing kind of songwriter she is, yeah. and and how she's this living link between, you know, English ballads that traveled the ocean and the oral tradition, <laughs> you know, right. um, that goes back centuries, um, and. And popular music, you know, the fact that, you know, the songs like Jolene and um, uh, all, uh, what's the My one? Home and, yeah, I mean, uh, Down mm-hmm. From Dover. I mean, the, Down From they, Dover. Maybe they weren't musically, you know, directly connected, but lyrically they clearly were. Yeah, I mean, and even part, and even somewhat musically. Um, yeah. She, she had a different sort of rhythm going on in her songs in a different kind, like the guitar lead, you know, in um, um, A Code of Many Colors, that kind of thing. The way it just, yeah. the the way that there's just so many um, verses, <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's a lot of words. All that goes directly back to those old story songs. And uh-huh. so I think Dolly is just a treasure in that way. And sometimes I wish Dolly would, would, return some more to that but she did do those those really wonderful bluegrass albums and she she decided about 10 years ago she figured out that she could kind of come back to some of that stuff that she'd spent her whole career getting away from yeah and and she's done a good job of that like i i would like to see her do more but she's definitely moved further in that direction than than many people you know did yeah absolutely and um and you know it's funny i mean i'm don't really love those albums but um <laughs> but I, <laughs> I i know people who do and they're really they are really wonderful well i think that they're yeah i mean if you if you don't have all of the porter and dollar records from the early 70s and you don't you know kind of obsess about it like we do i mean i'm <laughs> sure they're they're fine you know but they're yeah. just not you know 
what's that one, you know, Satan's River and, you know, all those songs that are just so shockingly good. That oh, yeah, right. That she wrote and, you know. You sent me that one recently. I wow. did. That was my contribution. I mean, that that's still. Uh, one among many, Dale. One among many. <laughs> well, so uh, tell me about Merle. Tell, tell the people about Merle and what. Um, Merle, I don't even know uh, how to begin to talk about. I think Merle is is like the heir to Stephen Foster, you know. Uh-huh. I'm not exaggerating. Like, I I, sure. I am prone to hyperbole, yes. Uh, but I, I think he's seriously an amazing songwriter. And sometimes I think, but, I mean, but except that some of the best songs, the most Merle-like songs that I treasure aren't even written by him. So he's also this great interpreter. You know, oh, yeah. He really recognizes other people's talents, like that Blaze Foley song, If I Could Only oh, Fly. Yeah, if I Could Only Fly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some of his other, um, and uh, some of his most songs that you think, God, that's just so Merle, are not even written by him. But he, yeah. he, um, um, The Way I Am, that's one, you know, um, he, his songs are. Uh, you know, they call him the, you know, the the poet of the working man. But there's something about the detail in his songs that I think any writer would be jealous of, and the sort of honesty. Um, he he uh, has a certain way uh, with language that is just kind of, you know, there's certain people who have that, like Billy Joe Shaver or who else, you know, are great songwriters. Um, and I'm going to get all inarticulate here because what is it? But Merle can really, he can tell a story um, very often from a point of view that gets you very sort of deeply invested in the story. You know, when you think of his songs like Carolyn or um, Kern River yeah. or, you know, he's often there the, if we make it through December. Right. That was one I was thinking of when you were saying that. Yeah, um, you know he's often there's there's not a lot of self pity involved, but someone's left him in a lurch. <laughs> he's got a problem. <laughs> um, sing me back home, you right. know, um, and that, whether it's about love or something, you know, with much higher stakes than even that, you know, like death, you know, impending death any second. Um, he just has a way of you know of walking that fine line between pathos and, you know, just human truth that, I, I don't know, it's like, it's unparalleled. Well, and and he's one of the few artists that is just a million times better now than he was in the 60s. <laughs> now when he gets on stage, I mean, he's just such a force and yeah age, age has really worked to his advantage in, in my opinion you know i mean his voice isn't as strong but that what he needs to do to songs what he does i think he's better at yeah that's very interesting it's true he's he's the he's a wonderful performer um yeah and he sort of does he go he sings more like willie nelson now because he has to phrase right. differently for yeah. his his voice, but um, yeah, and he is, but even that's you know, uh, uh, you know, he's a little jazzier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, but he brings so much to every performance. He's, 
who knows where he came from? He came from like this deep immersion into country music, right? Like he was right. the music that he loved, and um, he he was he listened to uh, I uh, who's the guy? Oh, oh well, anyway, there's a I think the, the I once got to meet the author Gerald Haslam, who grew up with Merle. Um, oh, in Bakersfield, uh, he wrote a great book about California country called Working Man Blues. Uh huh. He was. He went to grammar school with Merle, and of course, I was like, "Okay, we. I have to talk to you." <laughs> <laughs> I met him at a writers' conference, and um, he said that Merle was always the star. Like even before he was really into music, that's just the type, the the person that he was was very sort of well formed and strong. And um, wow. they all looked. They all looked to Merle for guidance. And, um, <laughs> and a lot of was, times, that was not the best place to look. Probably not the best idea. <laughs> He was a and, little and, delinquent. Yeah, and and I guess the other thing is, I I don't think that I mean maybe Johnny Cash, but the two of those guys, well, and and Willie Nelson too, I guess they've been so devoted to their musical roots, and you know constantly taking things that would not have been the smart commercial move instead to you know teach someone about Emmett Miller or to teach him about Bob Wills or <laughs> Rogers or, you know, things that, or the American Indian is Johnny Cash did. I mean, things right. that, well, things that wouldn't even be done today. I mean, yeah. The, and there's no way that. See why we love the seventies. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's I got to no tell you, I know the way I became interested in Merle was because my brother had given, um, I have a half brother who's much older and he wasn't around the family much because he was already grown up and he was, um, and he gave up my parents a copy of same train, different time. Uh huh. Which and, is, which is Merle's tribute to Jimmy Rogers. Yes. And so my sister Polly put it on tape for us and we, I would listen to it like, uh, you know, we, we, lived in Manhattan at a certain point I'd always be listening to it waiting for the subway and stuff you know <laughs> waiting for a train and everything oh, I was just obsessed with that album so right. Merle got me into Jimmy Rogers which you know right. one thing leads to another but yeah, yeah who a double album <laughs> yeah. yeah and well and to me even you know Johnny Cash's um Apache Tears or Bitter Tears right um that is just a big middle finger to everything about the establishment and i mean there's no way that would be made today i don't care how big a star <laughs> they are that would i mean i guess you could make it at home but yeah. no major labels touching that especially no in this way day and age and so yeah when you I mean, listen i recently saw there's like a video on youtube of 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 the man in black like the first time he sang it for um right on his show and uh, the lyrics really impressed me i thought wow everyone oh, yeah. needs to hear these lyrics yeah. right now Oh, absolutely. I mean, those guys were, I mean, you know, just in a different world in terms of how honest they were able to be to their musical roots. And, yeah. and you know, I'm sure they're, you know, I mean, you know, Johnny Cash also sang the Ballad of a Teenage Queen and some of those things that were sure. clearly trying to make pop records. So we don't want to kind of over, you know, estimate <laughs> that. But yeah. what they did was stunning. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I don't know that that's, that's why we they they remain, you know, to this day we still listen to them, you know. Right. 
Right. It's it's because of those things. It's not because of Ballad of Teenage Queen. It's because of right. just the musical risks they took that took them completely out of, you know, the complete comfort zone of the record company. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That... I mean, the, the prison records that Johnny Cash did, mm-hmm. I mean, all of those things were, everyone thought they were going to be huge failures, and yet those are bought as often today as some of these modern country singers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what we need more of. We need those kind of risks. Yeah, yeah. And a little more good music would not hurt either. <laughs> a little more good music out of Nashville. Nashville, if you're listening, um, please stop it and do something yeah. else. They're all listening yeah. to us right now, I'm sure. They clearly are. Yeah. I, for, for the first time, 10 days after I started, we're hitting more than 500 plays today. So kind of wow, excited about Wow, that's great. That. Yeah, I'm really excited. Good so, for you. Yeah, well, so, Ariza, if they want to, if someone wants to hear more about your theater games or how you can participate, tell me tell me what they can do. Well, um, visit the website, violaspolin.org. Okay. Um, we have a, a page on there for workshops, and you can get information about my workshops in Los Angeles. Right. Or um, our summer intensives in Door County, Wisconsin, which is a very beautiful place in the world. We do week-long intensives, so people travel travel from all over um, to study in a barn, which is really nice, <laughs> um, in our barn, um, uh-huh. and stay in little uh, cottages around Door County, which is um, kind of a resort, a famous resort area. Um and so that information is on there as well. So violaspolin.org. Okay. And um, the last, I think this is kind of timely because uh, Lemmy uh, just died, but tell me your Lemmy slash Wanda Jackson story. <laughs> um, so I was, uh, I I executive produced um, an A&R, a Wanda Jackson album, for CMH Records, where I used to work. Um, and this was in 2003, well before Jack White. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I think it was after that, that I think she had put out a live album after that um, with um, that was recorded in New York. And so she was doing an in-store at Amoeba. And my husband and I went to go see her to say hello because we were very, they were, we were very fond of, of Wanda and her husband Wendell and friendly with them. Um, and uh, the, Lemmy was there in the audience, and we were like, oh, wow, Lemmy's here. I didn't know at that time that he was kind of a rockabilly fan, but it makes sense. Good for him. Right. Um, and uh, just Wanda was somehow, I think she, you know, she'd met him backstage, and someone had told her, you should really introduce Lemmy, you know, <laughs> uh, for the kids. And so Wanda, uh, in her bright, sort of chirpy way, um, said, well, we have a very special guest in the audience tonight. Please let me introduce Lenny from Motor Hut. <laughs> and we all smiled and clapped. And, uh, and I don't I don't know if I – I can just imagine Lenny smiling as well. But <laughs> so it was very cute. It was very Wanda. <laughs> well, she once told me – Wanda once told me – I'm like a baby duck. Every day I wake up, it's a new day. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) 
Well, listen, thank you so much, Aretha, for spending a little time with me. And and uh, it's always fun getting to talk to you. And, and thanks for sharing everything. You too, Dale. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay, well, I'll cut that up. And I'll either make it one part or two parts. I'll kind okay. of see. Um, do you have a number for Wanda? Um, it's all. It's usually on their website. Um, okay. It's like it's still. Um, I may have it, but it, it, in case it's changed, it's like uh, Wanda J Enterprises or something. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, it's it's her still her husband Wendell is her. Um, yeah. Her yeah. Manager and. Well. I I just I was thinking today, man. I need to do Wanda. You know? Oh, fantastic! You must. I mean that. I, I tell you, the the one I've got. Coming out this weekend, the Andy Paley two-part interview is just so good. Like I'm just so excited about. Who's that? Seeing he is a guy. He has such a interesting story, but um, he, he's married to my friend Heather, and Andy. Um, he was basically living in Boston, living with the modern lovers was you know became best friends with Jonathan Richmond oh my and god then, and then he ended up moving to New York and was working at a record store with Lenny Kay and and Harry Smith like the the Harry Smith oh my god and then um he ended up moving well so anyway his brother and he got signed to Sire Records the Paley brothers and mm-hmm. so there are pictures of them up on stage singing with Patti Smith at the same time that they were he- or they were opening for Sean Cassidy at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and so this guy, he produced an album with Jerry Lee. We talked about that. He produced Brian Wilson. We talked about uh, oh my God, the Dick Tracy soundtrack. His he and his brother are in the movie Rock and Roll High School being backed up by the Ramones. <laughs> that's <laughs> amazing just, i mean like it's just you know, i've seen i i've then i've seen that you know, but i just yeah. don't remember well i mean the thing is he was in um the sergeant peppers movie too and he's like oh yeah i was there with dame edna and and carol channing <laughs> and i'm like holy crap you know? wow and, and so he married my friend heather and i've met him a couple of times he's a super like cool guy and but he's just got like so many stories of all the things he did and you well, might have to do another part. part what's that i said yeah, you might I, have to do another part i i took an hour and a half like he wouldn't get off the phone i we talked for an hour and a half <laughs> and, so, and so i'm going to cut that one up i mean but then he's like well you need to inter- you know you need to interview seymour stein so i think we're doing that soon oh so good for, that's great for, yeah, so for 10 days, I'm just kind of like, wow, this thing is taking off. Yeah. Who else? So, yeah, yeah you got to so. do – Wanda would be great. Yeah, Wanda – I'm, like, really thinking about some of those people because, you know, I I know enough about them that I can kind of let them do their own thing, you know, and not kind of step over them or whatever. So, yeah. So just let them talk, and you know how to ask the questions that other people don't ask. Cause yeah, well, that she'll get, she'll yeah. get on a track of stuff she's already info she's already given out. Yeah, well, I feel like that's one of the things that I could do, and we could start talking about Hank Thompson and kind of you know move it from there. And 
Yeah. You know, I've already thought about what I would ask her. So. What about Gene Shepard? I think Gene Shepard would be a great one to do. And Speaking uh, of Hank know. Thompson discovering amazing women, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, Gene Shepard and then, you know, we obviously need to work Connie Smith into there. And, you know, I mean, there's yeah. some, you know, some really, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things that, Nobody gets the chance to do this anymore of sit down and talk to somebody that kind of has an idea of what they did. Yeah. And, you know, you gotta, so. Right. Get get to call him. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to do. They can do it on the run. They could do it whenever. And then, you know, if you think of other people that I ought to do. Yeah. Please let me know, you know, because. I will. Know, I, I will. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm do I have enough that I'm like. A week ahead, like I could stop and not. Well, after this, even more than that. But uh, you know, I mean, it's just so fun. I just love it. And oh, good! It's, it's perfect, perfect job for Dale. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, um, anyway, thank you so much. And, oh well, what about you? Pete Anderson? He's fr- I'm, he's on Facebook. What's that? Just, uh, Pete Anderson. I'm looking at his face right now. Oh wow! Because yeah, I'm looking no, I, at he would Maybell. Be incredible. Yeah, he's well, on Facebook. Okay, well, I'll have to think about that, and and then you I've must be doing got, Deke Dickerson, right? Oh yeah, I know Deke pretty well, so I'm definitely going to do that. And then you know, I um, I actually have already got lined up Alan Light on his new book on Nina Simone, and oh, cool. then and then um, Warren Zanes on his Tom Petty book. Oh, great. So we're going to be doing them. So I mean, well, maybe you can talk to um, Garalnik. I've been thinking about that because a lot now would be the time because pretty soon he's going to be like, I don't need any more press. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, no, I think I want to do that, and then um, I'm going to do Alana Nash, obviously, and then um, yay, you know, and then I mean, it's just that's the thing. Everybody, when you do one, it's just like, well, I need to do this and I need to do that. But then, like today, we're gonna we're already at 500 listens, and it's you know not even half the day's gone. And so, you know, if it gets to, I mean, it's kind of a happening thing, which I'm just kind of shocked at this early on. But you know, then people love podcasts. I can't do them right now. Like I can't. Um, like for me, everything has to be like uh, I have to be able to read it because yeah. Uh-huh. I'm always like, someone's sleeping in my house. I have to be quiet. <laughs> like, I can't just, like, I don't, I'm not doing a lot of driving. But for uh, for a lot of people, they're, like, they love them. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, if we can just keep building on it. And, you know, I did one with Dan Baird from the Georgia Satellites, and that went well. And, and you Cool. Know, yeah, I saw that. That's great. So, you know, I don't know. I'm just pretty, pretty, pretty psyched. So It's awesome. Well, <laughs> what about Merle? He's well, scary. you know, I mean, the thing is, I've I've obviously got Frank Moe on speed dial, so I, you know, and so I'm going to check on that too. I mean, I'm not going to shy away from it. Yeah, and you. and I think the thing is, if I could make it, you know, because that's how I got introduced was he's the guy who knows about Fred Maddox, and you know, if we could kind of start it there, then I think I could. Yeah. You, know, you get, could be get, like you just want to inter- I just want to interview about your childhood musical enthusiasm yeah, or something. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. literally like keep it like I'm interested in how you, you know, in that, you know. 
or yeah. just about your songwriting, you know, like. Right, right. No, I mean, yeah, you could make it to where you, you know, made it more enticing. But I think if anybody can get that done, it's Frank. And then they're actually, you know, playing in St. Louis at Springfield in April along with Who's Willie. Frank? Uh, Frank is Merle's tour manager. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, you know, those people, I think, you know, I think that Andy's going to be able to get me Lenny Kay. Oh, and, cool. You know, and so if I, and, you know, if I get Seymour Stein within the first two weeks of my doing this, I'm going to be pretty psyched. That is amazing. <laughs> so, you know. Amazing. We'll <laughs> so, but anyway, I'll get this put together. This was really good. Like, I'm really excited that we did it. And, oh, well, thank you, Dale. Yeah, I'm, I, if that was fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, you made it all right, I'll, I'll send it your way when I get it done. Okay, thanks. Okay, bye. All right, take care. Good luck okay, with everything. Too. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye.